For March 7th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 140. Hulk, turn off the smash. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Tonight's panel is so big... How big is it? It's so big that the the aerobics of metaphor are strained trying to write a joke to uh, <laughs> come up with how big big they are. Um, if an asteroid were to hit the Earth and the Earth were to careen into the sun and the sun were to go supernova and turn into a black hole and suck in the whole galaxy and several neighboring galaxies. The, the, the aerobics of metaphor, is that like the architecture of analogy or the, the choreography of, of comparing two unrelated things? To, I, where, where are you going with this, rather? <laughs> and more importantly, can I get a workout tape with Jane Fonda that helps me stretch? For, uh, for these aerobics and metaphor. The resulting <laughs> singularity would be more massive than uh, the combined brain power of the podcasters tonight. But you said it would be more massive than yes. the combined you mean, you mean, It you mean would, because that, that would be very big. It would be very, mm. very big if that sequence of events were to transpire. But if it's a singularity, oh, you're not necessarily big, just it would be a high value. Yes, it would be. It would be, a, a, it would be a, a, a fairly small space volume because it was a singularity because it collapsed on itself due to its gravitation. Right, but it would okay. be it would be extremely dense, right, and that's very very uh, massive, though not occupying a great volume in space. Right, that's what she said. Wait, no, no, never mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> it's a big it's panel. It's true. Tonight. I said that earlier today. Oh, oh my God. It's a girl. What could that be? <laughs> awesome. I, I thought we didn't let those into our clubhouse. No, let's, uh, uh, let's get going. Is there a worse superhero um, than Spider-Man to base a Broadway musical on? And if there were, uh, what would that superhero turn off? So the, the answer to <laughs> please phrase your answer to the question in the form of superhero colon turn off the blank. Uh you know. So uh let's see. First in the alphabet, because all is right with the universe is Mr. Peter Fenzel. Woo! Spectacular, spectacular. It's great. Um so I, I put a lot of thought into this. Is your, answer, is your answer Boz Lerman? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Because Boz Lerman, he stalks the streets at night uh, looking for insufficiently baroquely adorned individuals and then covers them with ridiculous accoutrement. And that is his like quest against uh, drabness and darkness. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know. I guess maybe Boz Lerman, he does costume people sumptuously, or at least the people he hires does. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go a little bit for a deep cut. I'm going to say the, the Blue Beetle is a pretty bad superhero to make a, uh, to make a musical about. I'm going to say he's a bad. <laughs> <laughs> bad superhero in general. Uh, he's a bad superhero. Um, largely, I think he's a DC superhero who has no really designated niche that really fits into the larger superhero gestalt. And uh, and and he's mostly notable because other characters have been based on him who were better. I'm going to say that it's uh, was like turn off the zapper will probably be what it's called. And like the musical will have a giant bug zapper in the middle of the stage that will be on. For most of it, it'll be like a death ray 
that one of Blue Beetle's unremarkable nemeses is attempting to zap him with. And then he'll have to use his combination of like mid-level technical know-how and relative anonymity for a superhero in order to defeat, uh, as well as, as some, some jazz, uh, some sort of jazz and tap and modern. Um, uh, Blue Beetle, he, he's not really a Fosse kind of guy. It'll be a little bit more a- acrobatic than that, but not quite up to Spider-Man levels. Like you'll have to, do, you'll have to stretch, but you don't have to split, like that sort of thing. <laughs> Excellent. Mark Lee, uh, who has actually seen Spider-Man turn off the dark, what would be worse than the spectacle to which you have been subjected already? That's a really hard question to answer because it was so spectacularly bad, and we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> um, but I would say, actually, here's a totally legitimate answer. The escapist, turn off the Holocaust. What? Is everybody reading that? Okay, first of all, um, this the escapist being the superhero that is uh, featured in uh, the Michael Chabon novel, uh, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. You guys just oh. that, right? <laughs> Fantastic book. Obviously, you know, it's like, you know, very much themed about the Holocaust. The reason why this would be a bad musical, not necessarily because, like, the superhero himself and the storyline are, are ill-suited for a musical. In fact, the opposite is true. I think it would actually make a pretty good musical. But it would be a terrible musical to make, at least now, because there hasn't been a movie made of it. And it would just be a crying shame if some like asshat Broadway producer managed to get a musical off the ground based on Amazing Adventures of Captain Clay that was not um, that the before a, a movie, a proper movie version had made of it. So that being said, don't do that, please. The Escape is from the Holocaust is a terrible idea. For me. <laughs> I feel like I want them to do more than turn it off. I feel like I would want them to like dismantle the parts so that they could not turn it back on again. And I'm not really I wouldn't really be content with like just a, a temporary disablement of such a vast and I- incomprehensible horror of human brutality and nihilism. Well, you know, in some ways it would be appropriate because, you know, people think that we had dismantled, you know, the 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 means of genocide, but nope, we only turned it off and got turned back on decades later in places like Cambodia and uh, mm. and um, that put Darfur, you know. Wow. Still happened. Now that Mark has not only Godwin to the podcast, but also <laughs> dragged, dragged us down into a really <laughs> deep depression, let's go to Josh McNeil. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Um, I'm going to go uh, a little <laughs> droopy dog. Turn off the upper registers of your voice. <laughs> um, uh, Hulk, turn off the smash. <laughs> Music and lyrics by Randy Newman. Oh, like me, well, I'm angry when I'm open up a pickle jar. You now, um, so so wait in in Hulk, turn off the smash. Is Hulk like trying to reform himself? Is this like one of the plot lines where where Bruce or David Banner? Actually, he would be Bruce because Broadway wouldn't be scared of the uh, the way the networks were of the suggestion by the name of Bruce that he might be gay. Um, so you, is the Hulk trying to de-Hulkify himself by turning off the smash or are like other people trying to turn off the smash and he has to like rage back at them and like keep the smash on, uh, or like perhaps turn it back on after it's been turned off by getting angry at things. Well, I think you base it as closely as possible on the Ang Lee movie. Oh, well there, now, now you're just trying, now you're sweet talking me. Cause you know, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> I, I don't think I did actually, but just sort of like, it's, it's really very like a heady uh, a thing mm-hmm. where, yeah, of course he's, he's definitely trying to turn it off himself and there's, you know, the government to contend with and all that. Right. Um, but they're, you know, some excellent special effects to be had, I think. Mm-hmm. Excellent. John Parrish. 
What up? What up? What up? So you gonna the- skip me, Matt? Yeah, I am. You're yes. coming last. All right, all right. <laughs> because all right. you're, you're not really here. And it's called climax. It's good stuff. Just, just edit that out. I, <laughs> I'm so it's sorry. Called climax. That's what she said. Oh, um, come on. Oh, oh. <laughs> hey, I'll say John. It later. Welcome back after uh, like an epic illness of uh, of, of disastrous of proportions. proportions. Epic proportions. It's it's still it's still lingering with me a little, but I will press on regardless. My uh, my my illness notwithstanding. So the worst superhero to make a musical based on would be Steve Ditko's Mister A from the sixties. Uh, a little bit of backstory here. So for folks who know Charlton Comics or DC Comics, Steve Ditko, who's most famous as the inventor of Spider Man or one of the the primary writers behind Spider Man, invented this hero in the sixties called the Question, who. People who some people who are familiar with comics would know now. He wears a fedora and a bluish suit, and he has this mask that completely obscures his face, so it just looks like he has a completely blank face. And he mostly fights, you know, local local crime bosses and corrupt politicians, and espouses, at least in the '60s, a sort of watered down version of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Now, this was this was pretty good in the course of these stories, but apparently it wasn't didactic enough for Steve Ditko because in the 60s he invented a superhero called Mr. A whose powers seem to consist primarily of, and you can look this up, reciting really dense blocks, blocks of Ayn Rand-style text at, <laughs> at people. Like the, the stories would always be about these these petty criminals who who got in over their head, and then as as their as their criminal stories uh, climbed to a climbed to a peak, Mister A would show up and lecture them for about two pages, and then either kill them or leave them to die or something like that. So it would make an absolutely terrible musical because it would primarily consist of monologues by the by the title character Mister A, and the title would be Mister A Turn Off the Collective. <laughs> awesome. Now, the, the question – people might be more familiar with the question than, than we might think because the question is featured in some of the latter episodes of Justice League Unlimited, uh, the yes. cartoon, right? And, uh, and they do a great job with him because they turn him into a crazy conspiracy theorist, right? And, and that's his, his, his bag is that he's like – he has like the, the threads in his room or whatever connecting all the different pictures and newspaper clippings, and he's like obsessed with conspiracies, and it turns out he's right, right? And he's – he becomes one of the major characters in that sort of cool arc they have where they show all the minor ones. One of the other interesting patterns here is that both the question and Blue Beetle are inspirations for characters in the DC-published comic book Watchmen. Yes. Uh, the question is the inspiration for Rorschach, and the Blue Beetle is the inspiration for Night Owl, I believe. Because yep. he's sort of like a gadget using nonsense dude. Um, but anyway. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I do want to stress it's not specifically the Ayn Rand philosophy that makes Mr. A a bad character, because, you know, the question shares some of that. It's the, it's the really terrible monologues that would make it a bad character. I have to stress that. Uh, am, I, well, am I going I know, crazy? Rendered, or... as, rendered as kind of Stephen Sondheim-like monologue songs, they might be very moving and a, uh, a view into the human condition. Uh, I, actually, I actually feel like it would scan really well into a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> like it's kind of the same level of prose. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, both both he and and Ditko go in for that same level of melodrama. I can I can see Mister A in a in a cave beneath an, an opera house, laboring on his organ and tormenting his his dark, lonely existence. So possibly. Labor Man, I'd love to see a uh, Stephen Sondheim Batman musical. That would be the best. 
where he's just like talking on and on about losing his parents and like being a bachelor and he's just and he's like he's like so lonely and he like robin is there and they sing a bunch of songs to each other oh man i hope i didn't steal anyone's thunder with that but uh one of the songs is send in the clown <laughs> yeah. which is of course used in every batman thing ever but it's, it's still funny every single time and this time was especially awesome just when I'd stopped sliding down poles, <laughs> finally knowing the one that I wanted. Well, okay, uh, mine is uh, Captain Picard. Turn off the holodeck. <laughs> He's not a superhero. Well, he is in all the holodeck. He is in all the holodeck episodes of Next Generation, where he plays, you know, a sort of uh, uh, you know Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett inspired detective, where he plays Sherlock Holmes, where he plays Robin Hood. Uh, which contains the classic line from Worf, I am not a merry man. <laughs> uh, and he, he is sort of a, uh, uh, a superhero in Darmok and Jalada Tanagra, uh, in that he, you know, I don't know, masters an entire other alien culture in, in the space of a 45-minute episode. Um, Through we, don't, we don't have to do it today, but at some point, can we discuss like, the holodeck as sort of a storytelling device? And just, I'd like to hear you guys talk about the pros and cons of that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay, if we haven't talked about it before, we'll surely talk about it again. Yeah, let's You're actually that. on it right now, Josh. So, but we're not allowed to tell you because we're transporting you from your home planet to a different planet. Oh, uh, I know what's going it, on. With, I know what's going on in Josh's mind right now. Shaka. When the walls fell. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and yes, and so we have a special guest on the podcast tonight, someone who wrote in, uh, you know, <laughs> without a um, without specifically being asked to uh, under her own initiative, saying that she had written uh, written. <laughs> she wrote every episode of the Overthinking It podcast. No, she uh, heard every episode <laughs> of the Overthinking It podcast. She had gone through the entire back catalog, and let me tell you, I'll be the first to say that they are not all gems. Um, but she slogged through and uh, said some interesting things about them in the email, and we had to have her on uh, from Boston, where, for some reason, half the overthinking at writers live. It must be an awesome city. It's Maddie Myers. Hi there. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. We're really glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. So my musical that I would not like to see, except I would really, is Deadpool, Turn Off Your Common Sense. And I think this is the kind of thing that Marvel might actually jump the shark and do with Deadpool because he's getting a little oversaturated lately. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it would work because the best Deadpool comics have him fighting velociraptors and being the funny man to Cable's straight man or Wolverine's more protagonist sense. And I think that Deadpool as a protagonist just wouldn't really work, even though as a fourth wall breaking pop culture analyzing character, him breaking into song seems only natural. So right. really it's it's just a matter of time. And he already looks kinda like Spider Man. So <laughs> so really I'm just they counting. They can down. use the same costumes. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a it, it, Costumes itself. That's like half the budget of the show. And the rest of it is just getting Ryan Reynolds, right? It's just getting him I can sing. also add that based on my experience of seeing Spider-Man turn off the dark, that um, fighting a velociraptor or other lizard-like creature is no obstacle to portraying it on stage in a musical. Just putting that out there. I'm not going <laughs> to no, go into this is true. <laughs> this is true. I, I worry more about the fact that Deadpool himself doesn't – I don't think would lend himself well to – 
having his own plot just as a character i don't mm. think he's as effective that way well, let me ask well, i don't know much about deadpool but carousel but that doesn't stop them very much. <laughs> i don't know much about deadpool but let me ask this does he play well to middle america <laughs> probably not <laughs> therein lies the problem mm-hmm. right 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 didn't they now when they made the uh, wolverine origins movie that i didn't watch because uh, unfortunately i still have some taste I have left seen it. deadpool is the sort of hilarious side character in that movie and the guy ryan reynolds is interested in playing him in a feature film and i think that's sort of dubiously in the works but I heard that they took a lot of the joy out of him, that they sort of made him much more of a straight-down-the-middle kind of character without his, as much of his editorialization of what he's doing, right? Because that's kind of his thing, right? Is he, 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 witt- he wit- cracks witticisms about what he's doing like while he's doing it, and is kind of snide and sarcastic. Right. Um, I mean, he literally acknowledges the fact that he's in a comic book consistently, right, right, right. to the mm-hmm. point that it's the kind of thing that I don't even know if it would work in a film, because you'd need to have the, the actor do that. And, and, I, and it's, it's, I think that comic book readers are more willing to be comfortable with that type of humor than, than a movie audience. I don't know. It worked, it worked with Jim Carrey in The Mask, which is also ironically right. a comic book That's a good example. And then you've got stuff like Scott Pilgrim that's sort of self-aware of being in a video game, yeah. although yeah. not a movie. But still, that acknowledgement. You have to be careful with it. But you're right. They didn't do it in Wolverine Origins. They did have him still be a wisecracking character, and people liked that. But they, uh-huh. he only had a couple lines, and then they transformed his character completely in a way that i guess i won't spoil but because this is a spoiler free podcast but fenzel if you were at all worried about what they did with gambit's character don't worry gambit's character is still terrible (laughs) i was worried about that because i figured the guy who fights with cards if he got too interesting all of a sudden it would be really unfortunate uh no people really love gambit i've never really been on the gambit train so to speak but uh where it's like, oh, he throws cards at things that explode, and it's awesome. And it's like, all right, like, can't he just have, like, a knife or a bomb or something? Like, I don't know. It's, well, it's, he it's, charges the cards with energy and then throws the cards. So yeah, but that's... a bullet has energy in it already, right? Because you put the powder <laughs> in it, and that has the the chemical energy, right? So, like, the good people at Winchester or what have you at, uh, at, uh, at Smith & Wesson charge up the bullets with energy that they get. Right, right. But, but that's just not as cool as a card, <laughs> I, I guess is the theory. I, I don't know. The people who I know are who are into Gambit are, are young ladies who are attracted to him. So I think that's that's oh. also part of the uh, the charm there. Far be it from us to keep the ladies from enjoying their the things that they enjoy because we are thoroughly committed to the, to the ladies and. Uh, um, sure thing. Sure thing. <laughs> and so please teach us, Maddie, how we can get it on their good side because sometimes we piss them off. Uh, is it, uh, <laughs> is it Gambit turn off the bowl of gumbo? <laughs> <laughs> more, more like more like Gambit. Turn off the accent. Am I right? <laughs> I want to see Thor turn off the Thor. Like for Christ's sake, stop! Stop! He's not a superhero. He doesn't need to be around. Ugh, I'm so angry. I'm not really that angry, but I'm kind of angry. Uh, <laughs> well, people because Thor doesn't have any. This. The Thor the movie, I'm not excited about at all. Because Thor, he's this god, right? He's an Asgardian god, but as a presence in the Asgardian stories, he does very poorly when he's, like, the center of attention because he's a thundercloud. He's like a lightning bolt. Like, he doesn't have complex motivations to do things. He's just a destroyer, right? Uh, and, like, it, he's portrayed in the comics as almost this sort of old-timey, kind of noble person, which doesn't really mesh with the myths at all, right? But then he sometimes he's really sad, and he always looks really stupid because he's got the wings on his hat, and 
it's just, I don't know, man. And the, and the hammer, it's just, it's too complicated. It doesn't earn it. Whereas Hercules is great because Hercules is hilarious because he, he, you know, you don't take him seriously. But Thor, like, sort of asks you to take him seriously in a way that I don't, don't really support or appreciate. So I don't know. Thor, turn off the Thor. I'd be like, Marvel should just retire that dude. Just like, you're done. Put you out to pasture. Uh, but no, we have to watch the crazy movie, and I'm sure it'll be a great movie, and I'll feel like an idiot. Um, but whatever, there you go. <laughs> this movie's gonna do really well because it it appeals to sort of our demo, and then also like the women our age who grew up watching Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, like I know I know several women who are like genuinely excited about it because they know is there, the character. Is there a from- Norse Thunder God in Adventures in Babysitting? <laughs> no, it's like a, it was an '80s movie, and like there's like a, a a young girl who consistently dressed like Thor, and there's like a little subplot with him as the character. She was obsessed with the the Marvel character. Oh, I was so, thinking of. I mean, Elizabeth Shue is the protagonist in Adventures in yep. Babysitting. Yes, yeah, one of, one of the babies sat is obsessed with Thor. <laughs> I'm going to think about that for a moment. Uh, well, Pete, while you do that, uh, let me break in to say that, that for, for the first time, this podcast has a sponsor. What? For the first time in its history. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> yes. Anyway. We are sponsored by the Overthinking It Alternative Commentary Series, The Overview, uh, who's, uh, where episodes are available in the Overthinking It store and whose second episode we released last week. It's uh, an alternative commentary on Starship Troopers. Uh, it's available in the Overthinking It store. You may have seen our, our free sample. Like drug dealers, we hook you with a free sample. Uh, and then once you are jonesing uh, for more <laughs> of our uh, sweet ear candy, you can... Um, uh, you can, you know, uh, buy your second dose. Uh, it's Starship Troopers. It's uh, pretty damn good, if I do say so myself. And it has been selling since we uh, since we released it, selling consistently. So we're glad uh, we're glad of that. Thank you for uh, supporting us by by buying it. We now no longer have to solicit donations from you. We can actually give you something uh, in exchange for throwing us a couple of bucks to uh, support the work that we do here and hopefully expand the work that we do here. But uh, Starship Troopers is an awesome movie uh and we uh we consider it from a lot of angles including the uh the hero's journey aspect of starship troopers and uh whether or not there's anything in that film to be taken seriously um spoiler alert yes there is uh that's that if you want to join the conversation on the overthinking it podcast and you're a chump email us at podcast at overthinking com or call or text <laughs> the uh, voicemail number at uh Two zero three two eight five six four zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. But really, what you should do is head on over to the site and join the conversation in the show notes, um, in the comments section there uh, on the show notes page for this podcast. Because we always now have a fantastic community with great comments uh, about every episode. Um, I'm so I'm so happy about that that uh, it doesn't kind of end with us that we're not talking to the void and that we have a forum there where. Uh, you know, you can be heard and tell us what idiots we are. And well, actually me, because there's one of those at least every episode. Finally, um, we have climbed the list of the hot 120 TV and film podcasts uh, on iTunes. So if you double click on iTunes and then click to the iTunes store and then click to podcasts and then click to TV and film and then click view all we are no longer at the bottom of that list, but fully 60% of the way down it. 
Uh, so thank you for that. The reason that we're that is because people have been rating us on the iTunes store. So if you can't, uh, if you don't have time to leave a comment or you can't throw us a couple bucks to uh, uh, buy a commentary, the best thing you can do for us is to go to the iTunes store and uh, leave a rating. You don't have to type a, a long comment. You don't have to type any comment at all. Just leave a rating uh, for us, and that will push us up those rankings, and that's the best thing you can do to help new people find the Overthinking It podcast. Yay! Uh, and thanks awesome. to our thanks to our sponsor, the Overview, available at overthinkingit.com slash store. So, Maddie, you've listened to every Overthinking It podcast. What? Yes, also that I could understand the joke about Mint Milano's. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! They're still, we're still waiting, Ghostface Killer. Anytime you want to show up, Raekwon the Chef, you God, any of them. Offer is what happens if ODB team. comes back from the dead and then uh, shows them the podcast? He can have any Pepperidge Farm product he desires. <laughs> <laughs> it's Girl Scout cookie season, isn't it? Oh, no, Mint Milano's aren't, aren't Girl Scout cookies, but They're, I know that. Sake, Matt, you do your research. <laughs> I know, but I, it's, I, I just had a uh, – my neighbor dropped off a box of uh, Girl Scout cookies the other day, half eaten, and he said, I, I'm unable to stop myself from eating these. I need to get them out of the house. Can you eat them and get fat instead of me? And I said, thank you, good neighbor. I am happy to, uh, to answer the call. <laughs> Um, so what, uh, what can you tell us about the experience? Uh, first of all, we've been doing this podcast for more than two years, but you have consumed it in far less time than that, right? Over what period of time did you listen right. to the podcast and how did you, how did you get into it and what led you to want to, to do this and how'd you go about it? I found the podcast because you had Amanda Marcotte of the blog Pandagon on a show and I already read her blog and her. she linked to it. She's fantastic. And She's you had her on a show about... Roman Polanski, as I recall, you all had made some hilarious joke about him that she found distasteful and sent you an email, <laughs> and you invited her graciously to appear on the podcast to talk yeah. about it. And that was the first one that I listened to, and I enjoyed it very much, although I don't remember too much about it besides that I enjoyed it, and I decided to go back and listen to it from the beginning. This is something that I do with many things. I do it with web comics. I do it with a blog that I really like. I'll just go back to the very beginning, see how they started, and see how it's different. And as a result, I'm pretty forgiving of novice podcasters starting out, since usually they don't. I knew what I was going to be working up to, because I was listening to this one with Amanda Marcotte, so I knew eventually that I would get up to a point where you guys were doing the official intro at the beginning, and Mm. sort of having machinations that would work and the question of the week and so on so I, I i knew when i started out that eventually you would sort of get your acts together but i'm also pretty <laughs> forgiving about <laughs> about podcasts not necessarily being super professional from the get-go because i i think that everybody has a learning curve there mm. um is there anything well, yeah. you, is there anything you miss from the old days or was there a turning point for you i'm, I'm so curious because i'm a uh, an insufferable narcissist but um <laughs> right I, I i wish i had more information for you i i mean that that was actually about a year ago that i went back and was huh. listening so i i don't fully remember every like i don't remember a specific turning point it was pretty gradual um i remember I, i'm trying to remember all of your names i there used to be one of your writers was on all the time i think it was and now he's not on anymore. Stokes? 
Yeah, I think I'm thinking of Stokes. And I wonder, I sort of wonder how you decide who's on the podcast and who isn't. And and Mlosky was on it like once a very long time ago. And I very much enjoyed when she was on. And you all said that you didn't like having, or she didn't like being on. So I I don't know. It's, It's interesting to me just sort of seeing the the revolving door of overthinkers who appear sometimes and not other times. And Wait, Shana, usually didn't, Shana didn't like being on. Was that the problem? Because it was always, she was always great. She's, she's one of the best yeah. of us. Stokes, yeah, Stokes she was right. on the Stokes lost, a, the little lost podcast with Amanda Marcotte as well. I think. Yeah. And, and Sheila and Sheila as well. Right, right, um, right. And so like, uh, Sheila and I and Stokes now do these effing teenagers. Not, not all that often these days. Yes. And I listen to that too. Oh, good. Um, well, we're we're long overdue to. Uh, I know, to I know, but it's okay because well, Gossip have, Girls. You have, you right have three now, people so on hard. kind of a busy academic schedule, and it's it's almost impossible to uh, to line us up. But Gossip Girl and I think Glee also are on hiatus for a little while. Right, right. right. So, so it's sort of like what you talk about. I think that's okay. And I listen to the Kingdom of Loathing podcast too, and they all recommend you as well. So oh, and we recommend them. Had... Some of our greatest audience comes comes from those guys, and I hope we send them some too. Yeah, they're great. I that was how I heard about them was from you guys. So you both oh, talk excellent. about each other. It's amusing. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Um, so you're you're a completist, right? Which is something yeah. that I am I am as well. Uh, and it's why I never like to start anything because I know if I ever get involved in any television show or you know sort of serialized entertainment, I'm going to have to go back to the beginning and like get everything. And if I don't, I feel oddly naked. Uh, all yes, the time. I'm I'm absolutely the same way. Right now, I'm wading through Buffy episodes, and in season four, they referred to something that happened on Angel, and I was like, oh darn it! Now I have to go watch all of angel so i'm just feel like i'm drowning in this joss whedon nonsense after after that happened and absolutely i'm somewhere in season five thank goodness for netflix yeah here let me let me spoiler alert it for you it's about uh, (laughs) spoiler alert adolescent girls and ultra violence Absolutely, absolutely. It's great fun. Um, Yay! Well, speaking of ultra violence, yeah, we're really (laughs) (laughs) to the source material and also (laughs) adolescence. And teen sex and superheroes and gosh, I how much longer can I can I riff before? Yes, this is the gauntlet. And Mark Lee. Anytime. Wow. I, I gotta I gotta tell you for for a guest to the podcast, you segue like a pro. So yeah. my, my hat my hat is off to you, yeah, bro. You have done one of our signature uh-huh. belabored segues. I mean I, I feel like I should propose marriage to you at this point because it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I, let's put it this way. I I've been teed up like a, a bulldozer driver like putting a golf ball in front of Tiger Woods. <laughs> I don't know. That, that was some I should have I don't know, I think I sort of stretched my aerobic aerobic metaphors or something like that. Man, that segue really fell from about 30 feet really hard onto the ground. (laughs) Okay. It broke its wrist and had to be replaced with another understudy. And uh. (laughs) All right. So this is the one of the podcasts where we talk about Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, the amazing Julie Taymor musical um, of Spider-Man, right? Is that part of the subtitle? The amazing Julie Taymor musical? (laughs) It ought to be because it's really a lot about Julie Taymor. I'm going to get to that in a second, but it's interesting that the the first things that we're talking about, um, when we talk about the Spider-Man musical is the specter of violence, right? On stage, like the actors being injured and all these types of things. Um, and that is by far not the most interesting thing to talk about in, when it comes to this musical, because those, uh, sort of technical problems with the show and safety issues have by and large been worked out. Right. 
And also, but that, that being said, so one thing I will say that part of the experience, as um, you see the actors like doing the wire stunts as they go back and forth, is you're kind of your breath, you, you're holding your breath because you're like, oh my God, like I've heard this is dangerous. I hope something doesn't happen or slash I kind of hope something actually does happen. Okay, so we're going to bracket all this physical violence stuff because it's, that's not the most important thing to talk about. The most important thing to talk about is how spectacularly bad the show was. And, and because it's the fruits of Julie Taymor's vision, uh, odd vision and her fever dream, I think is what she had, and sort of the implications of what it means when a sort of tremendous work of art like this comes out and someone tries so hard and, and it becomes so bad, and then what happens to it, right? So let me back up here and like sort of explain what I'm talking about with how bad this thing is. Okay. Um, without, well, okay. Spoiler. Like where the dancer's not good? It's not about technical production. It's about <laughs> okay. the story. It's all about the story. Okay. okay. And spoiler alert. Spoilers for Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. In case <laughs> Isn't it we're just planning the on coming of Spider-Man? <laughs> no, it's not. It's no, not, 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 not even a little bit. Redhead. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so it's actually the story case, of Ajax. Spider-Man case... <laughs> um, realized that he thinks that there's a bunch of sheep that are Mary Jane Watson and Uncle Ben. He's slaughtered. <laughs> okay, so in case you're planning on forking over $150 and or traveling to New York City from a place other than New York City to see this, spoiler like, for all this. Right? Okay, so the, the major problem with the story is this, you may have read about this in the reviews, which were universally scathing, is this character called Arachne, who is supposed to be actually the, the, the figure in Greek mythology, right? The, the the expert weaver who challenges Athena to a weaving contest and then uh, beat Athena and then Athena turns into spider, right? Yep. So this Sounds is like a sufficiently stupid character to be like a 1970s Marvel creation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, earlier in the show, it turns out that the, it's revealed sort of you work backwards later and you realize that the, the radioactive genetically modified super spider that bites Peter Parker and turns him into Spider-Man was Arachne, like the Greek goddess. Okay. And so, in oh, this, okay. Yes. All right. This is the problem where the problems start, right? <laughs> so, basically, the first half of the musical is a fairly straightforward, um, you know, tale telling of the Peter Parker origin story. Um, and it, it has its problems, but there are some entertaining moments. Second half goes completely off of the rails. Okay. <laughs> Um, it's the product, and I mentioned this is the product of Julie Taylor's fever dream. I think that I'm not exaggerating. I think she actually had some crazy dream about, um, you know, combining, you know, this Greek goddess, along with, I think there's a throwaway reference to Arachne in the Spider-Man comics originally. She combines all these things and then concocts this off-the-rail story about Arachne, the Greek goddess, who is trying to seduce Spider-Man. Are you following me so far? Trying okay. to Spider-Man. And um, and is discouraged that Spider-Man sort of discards his Spider-Man identity, you know, uh, because he's losing Mary Jane and he's like can't keep up classes, all that type of thing. But you see in Spider-Man Two, the, the movie Spider-Man Two, right? Um, so uh, uh, Arachne becomes disappointed in Spider-Man, um, causes uh, con- uh, constructs like creates a, a mass hysteria, mass fear of a fake uh, invasion by supervillains. The Sinister okay. Seven, like led by the Green Goblin, they're all dead. Spider-Man. Oh, is killed. Mysterio one of them? Is Mysterio on stage dancing? Oh, I can't remember if Mysterio is one of them. But they're, they, it'd be hard to dance with that fishbowl on your head. You wouldn't be able to. No, see. no, no, no. Mysterio was not one of them. <laughs> oh, um, okay. There was the one doctor guy. This is what I mentioned about the Velociraptors earlier. This doctor who has a lizard growing out of his midsection. The lizard? Oh, wait. It was. It was the... really bizarre. But anyway, so um, yeah, these like the Arachne 
creates this mass hysteria, creates these illusions of these superheroes coming. So the Spider-Man comes back, you know, Peter Parker comes back as Spider-Man and then has to fight Arachne um, to save Mary Jane and then, like, does, stops fighting Arachne and says that, no, I just want to be with Mary Jane. And then Arachne says, thank you for freeing me and then frees Mary Jane. And then that's the end of the musical. Okay. Yes. So- Okay, My so all this happened. It completely just does not make any sense at all. I'm and like my mind is still trying to wrap its wrap its way around some sort of rational under uh, rational explanation for this narrative structure and what's going on here. But what it's really all about is Julie Taymor, right? This was sort of like her, the product of her imagination. This is her way of like putting a new twist on the Spider-Man story and taking Broadway by storm and like putting her imprint on on this on the comic book genre. And, you know, what we're left with is a, a titanic failure of storytelling. It is so unspeakably bad that you're left scratching your head wondering, like, you know, how did someone of such, um, of such esteem, you know, uh, get this product out there on stage? What, where were the people telling her that this, is, that this is nonsense? And now how do we deal with this? How do we handle the fact that, you know, that this has become an international phenomenon? It will continue to be an international phenomenon, not because of the, uh, of the injuries, which by and large seem to be a thing of the past, but more because of the storytelling problems with it. How do we deal with this fact that, you know, potentially this could be on Broadway for 10, 20, 10, 15 years and people are still going to be seeing this? Really? What do we, what do we make of this titanic achievement of awfulness? Mark, was the theater full? Yes! It's been selling to like 95, 97% uh, capacity audiences since it's gone into, uh, into previews early, earlier this, I think late last year, early this year. People are coming out in droves of seeing this. Okay, all right, Mark, Mark follow me here. So okay. let's say that the producers of this musical possibly, you know, oversold their investment in the musical and have committed, say, insurance fraud. So that they intended to make a musical so bad that it would have to collapse and recoup their money. But instead, ironically, it's have I have I have I has this happened? Has this happened already? Springtime. <laughs> so I'll I'll give my initial reaction, which is that this plot line sounds a lot like Spawn. Right, like I'm not familiar with Spawn. You'll have to bear with me for a second. Because so, like, so the thing that the thing that um that is, of course, the farthest departed from Spider-Man is the idea that being Spider-Man is has some sort of agency over Spider-Man other than his own agency. Okay, this is the third movie, right? Um, well, I mean, that's Venom. Venom is different. Oh, okay, than sorry, sorry. But, 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 but Venom, the idea that Spider-Man is like this sort of hostile state that's put on Spider-Man as a way of tricking him. I mean, the, the symbiote does that to an extent, but this idea that the power itself is sort of the machinations of some sort of divine or semi-divine being who's behind the scenes pulling the strings. Like, Spider-Man is very secular. Right, like Spider-Man, the actual character, like not the actual character, but like the canonical character, is is not involved in any sort of mysticism. Um, but the description of it sounds a lot like the plotline for the '90s and aughts, uh, briefly very very popular uh, comic book and movie and TV show character Spawn, who is he's an assassin for the government who dies. Uh, and I think he's um, there's an, something involving somebody sleeping with his wife. He comes back to life. Uh, from hell, um, from H-E double hockey sticks, um, encased in a very Venom-like suit. And it's actually by Seth MacFarlane, who was a Spider-Man artist, 
Uh, no, is it, is this yeah, Seth MacFarlane, who was a Spider-Man artist before he was uh, not Seth. Am I con- Tom, getting Tom. My, with Tom McFarlane? I'm getting my McFarlane's mixed up. If we're by Seth MacFarlane, it would have been a lot lighter-hearted than Spawn actually was. But basically, uh, you know, he is is a Hellboyish character who is destined to lead the armies of Hell upon Earth uh, in in some sort of apocalyptic encounter. But, but he doesn't want to, right? He doesn't want to do this. He wants to maintain his sanity. And there's this clown character who's always kind of like tempting him and trying to get him to be evil and trying to get him to die. So that is, he comes back again from the dead. He sort of loses more and more of himself. And it's this kind of like struggle of like, am I this person? What is this abomination that I've become? You know, and then this sort of like cosmic fight where where there's a, a moral alignment of power um it, where it's, it's magical where, where where the power has a purpose that's part of the metaphysics of the world in which we live right whereas this arachne thing is like you know it's a, it's a pagan goddess right which is very broad way it's very gauche it's very like let's be progressive in terms of how we think about the world you know it's like you know spider-man is ruled by his power is dictated by this kind of like um it's it's another case of a philosopher or a writer making themselves the most important person in the universe, right? The, the sort of like w- the the creator figure who also spins webs and makes art, right? And is the woman who made Spider Man, right? And mm-hmm. it sort of like exactly. reflects the person who made Spider Man, right? Um, and but but this idea, I don't know. I mean, I'm just sort of saying that there are superhero stories that have done this. Spider Man isn't one of those characters for whom this works, um, and it's sort of interesting because it's, it, she probably thinks it's kind of original. Right, because I suspect she probably hasn't watched Spawn or read it. Um, I think that's the same any- assumption, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it might not be familiar with other instances in which, like, bizarre pseudo-mythological, pseudo-religious beings, like, imbue superheroes with authority and power in sort of, like, char- gender-charged situations involving their loved ones. Um, it-, it just seems like poor execution of an idea that's been done better and before. Mm. The well, other thing I should, I should point out as well is that, um, you know, when I say that Arachne was the spider that, that bit... Peter Parker at the beginning. I think it's ambiguous that if that was actually her or not, because mostly because the entire second half of the musical involving Arachne, like she visits Peter Parker in a dream, and various other things come into play, which causes one to question if Arachne actually exists in quote unquote reality or not. In other words, the whole thing could just be in Peter Parker's mind. So it's kind of like Inception, I guess, in that way. <laughs> That's not what Inception is. <laughs> wait, 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 hold on a second. Inception isn't about uh, a spider goddess. Yeah, no, I'm just saying that Inception isn't like a Bob Newhart thing where it's like, oh, like none of this mattered, right? Because this was all imagined. Um, I mean, like there there are issues in which of like reality and unreality, but it's just not. It's not like this. It was all a dream. I always get that wrong because I always quote Biggie as saying it was all a dream, but it was really it was just a dream. But um, yeah, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine and whatnot. So, so. Mark, did mm-hmm. the did the show include any of the things that I consider to be the charms of Spider-Man, which are the fact that he sort of has to continue this normal guy persona. And unlike your Batman, he doesn't really have any money and he just still has to keep working a normal job. And he's this very everyman character. Does it, does it keep any of that feeling? Sure. sure. It, it keeps a little bit of that, but the important thing to keep in mind about the plot uh, insofar as there is one in, in this musical, is that the the larger framing of Spider-Man, like everything we know about the origin story, about Mary Jane, about that what you speak of of you know struggling to to do to maintain his normal life while also being Spider-Man, it's all there. It's all sort of it's mostly uh, the musical is meant to evoke all those story elements which you already know. 
And here's an important thing to note about this. Is the entire thing is framed by a, a Greek chorus that is called the, I kid you not, the Geek Chorus. Right? Oh. For, 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 uh, for comic book nerds who are, like, trying to, like, construct sort of, like, their canonical Spider-Man story. And, you know, they frame it and say, ooh, we have to do the origin story now. Ooh, here's the part where, you oh, know. screw that. Oh, that's awful. So, yeah, so these, things are, these things are put out there and, you know, and then, you know, we see the things like, you know, the lab. We see, you know, Tom, you know, Norman Osborn become the Green Goblin. We saw these, these things happen and they are, you know, ostensibly there to propel the plot forward. But we also have the, you know, the outside of the narrative framing device, which also propels it forward. So you can see the things that happened on stage is just being sort of more. You know, evocative of things we already know about. Okay, all that applies for everything except for this Arachne stuff, which makes it so infuriating. Mm. So, so I'm wondering. I mean, so it's it's a pretty big stretch to have a musical with Spider-Man in it, right? Like, like I want the thing I want to compare this to immediately upon hearing it is Spamalot, right? Which is sort of the other musical they've made in the past, however many recent years, to try to appeal to a male audience that might want to go see musicals because the musical audience is overwhelmingly female. Right? So there are two important differences between Spider-Man and Spamalot. Yeah. Um, the first being that the main character in Spamalot does not wear a mask. Okay. That's a very important thing, actually, because how stupid would it be, right, if, you know, Spider-Man were, like, you know, in tights with the mask on and, like, you know, singing and dancing on stage, right? Because you can't see the, the person's lips move. It just – there's a real barrier with that, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing about that is that no one in Spamalot flies. Or I haven't seen <laughs> Spamalot. I'm pretty sure no one in Spamalot flies. I, I haven't seen it, but it, from what I understand – I've from, seen it. it there's no flying, as I recall. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, then. Is there an additional layer of framing device – between the sort of like telling of the story of the movie and it being a musical uh, or do they just sort of straight up tell the story as if it were a musical like is there a constructed like sort of meta narrative introducer like a chorus? they tell the story as if it were a musical they're not like oh now let us perform this story which with which you are familiar they only do that insofar as they're like we're performing the story of king arthur right but, you know, they they act the the musical would still function if the movie didn't exist, if you See, didn't that's, know that's about huge. the movie. That's huge, because it sounds like the Spider-Man musical wouldn't function at all if people yeah, didn't not. do it with a great deal of advanced knowledge of Spider-Man, which is a lot to ask for even of somebody who likes Spider-Man. Because, I mean, the Spider-Man movies that were successful, not the old one, which was terrible, but the ones with you know, Tobey Maguire, and especially the first and second ones, they don't really assume that you know who Spider-Man is or what he does. Exactly. Like, they, they rely on your familiarity as a boost to their, their positive energy. But like this, this just seems like you're just adding way too much complexity to to this i mean it's 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 a crazy story like it's a crazy story like the kid who gets bitten by a spider and he lives in new york and he ejects liquid from his veins or from these little machines on his wrists and swings around jump kicking people like that's nonsense Mm -hmm. and you're on top of that gonna add a framing device like that's a little bit much and on top of that then you're gonna add this whole arachne you know julie tamor's alter ego so there's, into the next. Yeah. so there's like the layer of reality of the chorus that's telling the story that's in the comic book because they read it from the comic book. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a further level of reality where there's the god who's talking to the character who's in the story but is not interacting with the people who are telling the story. Yeah. In other words, I think Julie Tamer was overthinking it. 
<laughs> she put it together. Put I think together. even if you overthink it, you have to recognize like where and when is it is appropriate. I, I'll bring this to a subject that that um, that, that uh, Matt also would be very familiar with. When you're writing in English, you should be somewhat cognizant of the fact that sometimes when you write in English, you're writing with Latinate words. Sometimes when you're writing in English, you write in Germanic words. And Germanic words are generally shorter, more intuitive, and Latinate words are generally more ornate. And sometimes the ideas that they represent are a little more complex. They speak with a different sort of authority. Uh, and one of the things about the aesthetic of English is like once you have a certain amount of complexity in your sentence structure and your language, um, it actually makes the writing worse to add more. And you want to balance like like how much complexity you want to add, how much complexity the reader can handle, how much complexity the text can handle. And it is not like an artful or good thing to make something more complex than it needs to be. Uh, and it seems like in this case, you have to recognize what parts of what I'm doing are complicated. And she seemed to mistook uh, or they seemed to, because I'm sure it wasn't just her and there was a whole crew down there, but she seemed to, they seemed to mistake familiarity with simplicity, right? I mean, even the Superman movies, when they get complicated, are terrible. I mean, the, the guy who can get the power from the sun and the nuclear weapons shows up, it's like, okay, I've lost interest. I, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to jump in that, the, that while Julie Taymor's interpretation of what would make a good Spider-Man story arc may be may be terrible. I mean, let's just let's just call it that. It might be terrible. There's a lot in the Spider-Man canon that is also pretty ridiculous in and of itself. I mean, to take a recent example, if Julie Taymor were looking to adapt a recent Spider-Man storyline in which a divine power steps in and deliberately meddles with Peter Parker's relationship with Mary Jane, she could have just adapted the 2007 story arc One More Day, which was famous for uh, famous in which Peter Parker, spoiler alert, but this is this is all old news anyway, in which Peter Parker, in order to save his dear Aunt May's life, uh, sells his marriage, like actually sells his marriage to the devil or the, the demon Mephisto, who in Marvel Comics has always been a stand-in for the devil. And uh, his marriage to Mary Jane is retconned, that is written out of continuity. So in a, in a sort of meta fourth wall breaking down, since in official Marvel Comics continuity since then, uh, Peter Parker and Mary Jane are no longer married. Because he he sold his his marriage or something to the devil. This was immensely unpopular at the time to a, to a lot of fans, largely because it's kind of a kind of a clunky narrative choice. Uh, and and this is only a recent example. There is also from the mid '90s the Clone Saga, if anyone remembers that, where there was some back and forth over whether or not Peter Parker was a clone of someone else, and then it turned out he was, and then the clone was Spider Man for a bit, and then there were a hundred clones, and then it it really got complicated. So. If you really want to get into Spider-Man stories that work as straightforward stories of hero faces challenge, hero suffers setback, hero looks within himself and overcomes challenge, you, you don't have a, a lot to pull from from the canon unless you get really obscure. Right. So, you, John, you bring up something uh, something that I want to, I want to get on here and I alluded to earlier, which is um, sort of the, the, the risk-taking going on with telling a very complicated Spider-Man story. So let's go back to sort of this issue of like you're saying that, you know, that the, the Spider-Man comic book narrative is filled with equally or perhaps if not more so ridiculous stories than what I just described for Spider-Man Turn of the Dark. Is that correct? Yes. Well, I'd, I'd say this is true of comic books in general, of Spider-Man in particular, because melodrama has always been sort of 
really foisted on him. He's always been the the suffering sad sack, mm-hmm. but in the world of Marvel Comics, that suffering can be inflicted by alien symbiotes or Doctor Doom or Mephisto or people like that. Sure. And, and, and I think and, it depends on which Spider-Man you're talking about. The one that you're talking about where they wreck on his marriage is the Spider-Man that appears in newspapers. Yes? Yeah, and that's yes. a particular iteration of Spider-Man. I mean, you have to deal with the fact that different writers write this same character as with right. all other so, major superheroes. So here's this is what I'm getting at here, is that you yeah, know, so- for Spider-Man, the Sunday you know the weekly uh, comic strip, and first, and to a lesser extent, to Spider-Man, the you know the the bound comic book, not bound isn't the right word. You know the published comic book that comes out as part of the Marvel canon. The, taking risks in these arenas and sort of doing these outlandish storylines is a completely different thing than taking a risk in when you're putting on a Broadway musical that is a self-contained two and a half or three hour long uh, production in and of itself. In that, when you take a risk. In you know the in the in the form of the Broadway musical, um, you know there you can't make up for that failure as easily as you can with the um, with the with the comic book version of it, right? And that's what I'm what I'm getting at here with with Julie Taymor is that like she took this tremendous risk here, and like I guess in some ways like maybe she's deserving of some credit for at least trying to do something that's kind of out there as opposed to just you know pedestrian like telling rotely retelling the Spider-Man story. So this is what we get out here in terms of like, you know, this, how do we deal with this spectacular achievement of awfulness? Because it would not have been hard for Julie Taymor to do essentially with Spider-Man what she did with The Lion King, namely make something that's very visually spectacular, incorporates puppetry and staging and backdrops and lighting in a very interesting way and is, a, is an interesting visual spectacle, but still recounts a story that everyone has already seen in theaters once at least. As we have people, you, John, you've seen the Lion King musical? Yes, I've seen the Lion King. I've seen the Lion King musical in London, and it, well, it it is a re, it is a retelling of the Disney Disney movie, The Lion King. So you'll see that. And what I thought of it, just to just to be a little musical theater critique for a minute, is that the the set pieces where there's a lot going on on stage at once, like a lot of puppets or a lot of dancers or a lot of flying mobiles and things like that, and backdrops and lights, are really phenomenal and really spectacular. And the set pieces where there's only one or two people on stage at once, it looks like they don't know what they're doing. Like they're just standing on stage, not really comfortable with themselves in the space. They don't really know where they should be standing or how they should be holding their bodies. And it's and those those tend to be the the songs that were written uh, originally for the musical, as opposed to adapted from the the Disney movie. So it's it might that might say something of. You know Tamor's Tamor's contribution to it. Although the puppetry and the you know the backdrops and such were were really phenomenal, I do need to stress that. Mm-hmm. I mean, so what do people think about this this thing that I'm putting out there? Right, she took this tremendous risk. She tried really hard, and you know has a steaming pile to show for it. Right? Does she get credited for this? Should we encourage this type of risk taking? Um, it was painful to sit through. Um, I, well, well, painful maze is the right word. Like I was expecting this, so I was kind of laughing my ass off um, as you know, uh, Arachne uh, declares that she has descended from the astral plane. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm gonna say no. What? I'm gonna I'm gonna go out yeah. on a limb and say that uh, you know, I don't know, crappy entertainment should not be encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I, I mean, I have thoughts. About don't that. tell them. People who are listening to our podcast—a controversial claim. Oh my goodness! Um, don't tell Vin, or else I'll be mad at you. Because you know, uh, look, I think that like 
I, I I think that you may you may be mischaracterizing it a little bit as saying that like she was really reaching and sort of oh I don't know like you know really really trying something new or trying something trying something edgy. This is the most. I mean, by a, by a multiple of two or three, this is the most expensive, you know, commercial musical that's ever been staged in the world, right? right. With a budget of, of $65 million. This wasn't like someone, like, toiling away in their garage to create something the likes of which the world has never seen before. This was a, uh, uh, you know, a um, orgy of money-making from beginning to end, or at least that was... You know that that was the hope, um, and if it turned if it had turned out to be at least serviceable, uh, you know we wouldn't be even talking about it. We would kind of all cynically sort of shrug our shoulders and say, "Well, you know that's uh, that's the business and show business." Um, it, I, I, if you think what I think um, about it, that created creativity is a kind of problem solving, then in a way, the the more constraints you have. Um, the better off you are. I mean, the the more mm. it's kind of a blessing in disguise as a as a uh, creator of of pretty much anything, because by limiting the possibilities, uh, it really it focuses the mind and it um, it makes you really concentrate and work on what you have rather than uh, rather than going George Lucas on everything, uh, right? And sure. I mean, when you say limiting the possibilities, in some ways you're talking about well, what exactly? Like, well, in the case of George Lucas, like you know, the possibilities of constructing artificial worlds with special effects. Or in the case of, you know, a Broadway musical, constructing extremely elaborate sets and costumes and, and using expensive wire stunts. Is that yeah, what you're talking about? Look, time, time, budget, and audience. You know what I mean? Time, budget, mm-hmm. and attention are the, you know, are the, the resources. And um, I don't know, you sort, of get, you sort of get one. You know, you get a pass on one. You know This is I mean? something... It's something David Mamet's talked about in his book Bambi versus Godzilla, which is, <laughs> which, which it's it's a very it's a very good it's a very good sort of rough memoir on his his years in Hollywood and how he's you know how he's sort of adapted there, having come from theater. But one of the things he talks about is he cites the example of Jaws, where because of the many mechanical failures with the the initial plan for the fake shark it was only shown in you know the later reels of the movie which forced spielberg to sort of develop his craft in ways of heightening suspense up until that point and mamet also talks about i think it was one of his some some draft of a screenplay that he completely lost that he just absolutely uh through a computer crash or something like that, completely lost. And he said it was the best thing that ever happened to it because I had to reconstruct it just focusing on the pure elements of the story that were in my head as opposed to being faithful to all the clever little tricks of language that I had invented the first time around. I'm paraphrasing, but that was that was his take on it. And that, that was before he... Well, never mind. I mean, I'll, I'll, add, I'll add to this contribution that, it, of course, it depends on context, right? Like, one of the reasons why you might want to naysay or say something is bad is that if you consider yourself to be somebody who ever wants to work on stuff like this or is interested in how it's made. Because um, then you have to determine what you like and what you don't like and what you would want to have be part of your work and what you would not want to have be part of your work. Um, I mean, there's different ways in which criticism can function, but the one I always like to think of is – you know, if I were to be part of experimenting to make this kind of stuff, like, how would I want to do it? Right, right. And, and there's a lot about this, which is just like, oh, no, I wouldn't want to do that at all. Partially because, you know, I care a lot about the subject matter for whatever reason. And, uh, and part of it because you, I've seen so many things that are like this 
um, that it kind of seems like a huge lost opportunity to, to retread old mistakes or to kind of wander off the path so hard from the things that we already know. Um, and the yeah, you don't want to just go around telling people that their work that work is lousy. Like life is too short to be that kind of curmudgeon, uh, unless you're doing it to entertain people, which of course we try to do. Um, but you know, you, uh, we're not. I'm not, we're not pooping on this just to be curmudgeonly. We're, we're oh pooping no, no, on it because it deserves pooping on. Well, I, I'm not pooping on it because it deserves to. Be, I mean, a lot of people, those who there are plenty who who die who deserve life, and many who live who deserve death. You know, don't be so quick to hand out death and judgment, Frodo. Like even the very wise cannot see all ends. Like whether or not it deserves it uh, is less important than like uh, why we're saying it in terms of like why we're we're say, why we're getting out there. And I think it's because we live in this kind of cultural uh, whirlpool where people are constantly thinking of themselves as capable of or part of creating the culture that's around us. All the fan fiction and all of the like homemade movies and all the contributions that everybody is making, we all feel like we're part of the project. And as such, the parts of the project that we like and we want to keep going, we praise. And the parts of the project we don't like, we decry. And we do these things largely to create benchmarks for our own work and for, and for others to recognize, say, hey, when you're making stuff, do it like this and I'll like it. Do it like this and I won't like it. Right? Because you know, I'm part of this team too. Collaboration. So Pete, if you were to you you said you would you would probably wouldn't try to do this type of thing yourself, but if you were to put on a Spider-Man musical, how would you do it? How would I put on a Spider-Man musical if I yeah. were to do it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it would rely very heavily on like very old-fashioned kinds of musical skills. Like there would just be a lot of really cool dancing, right? I wouldn't try <laughs> to simulate actually using web shooters as much. The thing is, my Spider-Man musical would be that would be there to make a point, and it would be there to be enjoyed by a very small number of people. Making if you want to make a, a mass, <laughs> kind of like but, your, kind of like your blank verse adaptation of RoboCop. The one that I <laughs> talked about making that I never make, the tragical history of RoboCop. Yeah, you yeah. wrote the Bixby scene. It's brilliant. You should put it on overthinking it. Oh, the Bixby scene? Oh, yeah, yeah, You like that? You like that thing where I, where it was I buy that and it was, oh, it, like- I thought it was brilliant, and you did it at the same time as the uh, the Big Lebowski uh, blank verse adaptation, which I thought was – and I thought yours was was far superior, uh, both as a, as a piece of artistic cre- creation and as a piece of uh, Shakespearean pastiche. Yeah. They're I mean, remaking I think, RoboCop, aren't they? Or is that just a bad dream that I had? I feel music. like I read that press release. It was rumored. Darren Aronofsky was supposed to remake oh, RoboCop, but that uh, was put on hiatus with MGM's uh, financial troubles. But now we're, now we're at Verhoeven thinking it. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, I would say there's two ways you can do it. You can do it as a performance piece where Spider-Man is just a character, right? And then you just you do a musical and you don't feel all self-conscious about the fact that your musical isn't, you know, super duper and has web-slinging in it. And you just tell the story of Spider-Man and you write good songs, right? And people like good songs. And maybe you throw in some rock and roll or some contemporary stuff and and, and or maybe you do this big budget thing with lots of swinging and acrobatics. But if you're doing a lot of swinging and acrobatics, I feel like you got to do it kind of straight down the middle, right? Like, because mm-hmm. this is like a crowd pleaser, right? Like, gifts- yes, and the swinging and acrobatics were extremely crowd pleasing. For the record, yeah, I mean, I also think Spider-Man has kind of a problem because his villains are generally kind of bad um, as, as a superhero. I mean, Venom is cool, but Venom's story is a little bit too complicated, and just Spider-Man doesn't have like a Lex Luthor. I mean, the Green Goblin is kind of dumb. Hobgoblin is kind of dumb. Like, Mysterio is ridiculous, right? Like, like um, Doc, Doc, Doc Octopus, 
I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> let's get serious about things. <laughs> I mean, like, yes, we're talking about people who run around in tights trying to save or destroy cities on a daily basis, far more than any sort of reasonable city could tolerate <laughs> without, like, shutting down all of its major services. But, uh, but it's, some superheroes do a lot better with their plot lines and their villains. I mean, even, you know, Daredevil and Bullseye is probably a better matchup than Spider-Man and most of his bad guys. Uh, and, that's, and even that's pretty bad, right? Okay. Um, all right, guys, guys. We do West Side Story, but with Spider-Man. Hey. <laughs> Done. Done. We, we just change the names. That's how you do it. You do a little night music, and you just change all of the names of the characters, and it's perfect. We, well, we right, got this Dan. Is, I mean, this is the thing. I, John actually, I think, is making a good point in a roundabout way. Like this thing is by this kind of thing is by no means new. You know, like adapting adapting a story for a new time or a new medium, and the the two examples um, that that spring to mind, because I'm insufferably pretentious, are uh, Racine's Phaedra and um, Ennui's, uh, Ennui's Antigone, right? Uh, and You're going to have to explain those a little bit. What? Oh, Jean Ennui, a uh, uh, French playwright, wrote an adaptation of Antigone, uh, mid-20th century, and Racine's Phaedra is um, from, from well before that, uh, an ab- adaptation of... Um, Oh God! One of the Euripides tragedies, uh, Hippolytus, something to do yeah, with Hippolytus. Hippol- yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> um, and the the uh, you know the idea that that um, that there's a there's a kind of DNA uh, in the story that is valuable, but that needs to be kind of represented, or that you know needs to be kind of recontextualized in terms of the present day, uh, is you know I don't know is is artistically not in itself discreditable, right? Uh, I mean, that's kind of a double negative and a little bit hard to parse. But, yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a firm believer in the idea that theater and movies recycle stories all the time. That's why I didn't hate the movie Troy, because I'd seen – I'd read, like, a bunch of, like, medieval or, like, like Renaissance English reinterpretations of the story. Like, Dr. Faustus and Faust, like, all the times that they retell the Faust story, right, in theater. Like, Shakespeare only made up one of his plots. All the plots are rehashed. So theater can handle telling a story again twice. You don't have to worry about, oh, how am I going to make this Spider-Man movie so much more, like, legitimate than the other ones? Just just do the thing. And the fact that it's you, and if you do it honestly and commit to it yourself and don't worry so much about whether or not it's going to be, like, you know, unoriginal, I mean, I mean, maybe people would care about that a lot. And, of course, any writer is going to worry about that somewhat. But, like, uh, you just – you end up overproducing the effort, right? Like, it's, it's not a, a foregone conclusion to write a good Spider-Man story. So if you can do that – then, then that's a good thing, and you shouldn't worry so much about whether once you have your good Spider-Man story, you need to add enough bells and whistles to make people want to watch it or to make it feel like it's an original work, you know? Well, that was sort of the, the most recent example of that in this genre was the two Hulk movies that got made within, what, five or six years, right? Yeah. And you, you were a big fan of the first one. Did you think the second one was doing that sort of thing? Uh, I mean, the second one is is pretty much what I was talking about with the Spider-Man musical, where it's very straight down the middle. Except, again, the that one, Hulk also has a problem where all of his villains are terrible, except for the government and um, and Mary, and uh, Betty Ross's dad. Um, so, you know, fighting the abomination is kind of unfortunate. Um, and so the second movie is kind of boring. The first movie is more interesting because it takes, like, the Hulk story, especially the Hulk as we see in the TV show, who's kind of like a mournful wanderer, right? Um, and, uh, and it retells it. Um, they definitely are very different movies. They definitely are, are sort of capturing a certain kind of cultural moment, I guess. 
Um, so I think that's kind of what they're doing. I think they're both okay. I like the first one better because it takes more risks. This is probably where I very also, also because yeah. it has Hulk dogs. <laughs> no, the Hulk dogs are the worst part. It has Hulk <laughs> contemplating the lichen, which is my favorite scene, which is where Hulk is uh, running from the – I've probably told the story in the podcast like a dozen times, but Hulk is running from the government airplanes and helicopters and all that other stuff, and he like he's jumping in huge mile-long leaps across the southwest, and he lands in this gulch of sandstone and dust that's all red, and he's green, right? And these are complementary colors, and he's like in the – he's bright green. He's in the middle of this red ravine, and he's just like – there's just silence, and you see the wind blow through his kind of – poorly animated hair and and the camera it comes in you know close on this big prominent you know, prominent piece of sandstone and right on the top of that sandstone is this little green like moss or lichen right that's just like clinging to the sandstone and hulk kind of like looks at the at the lichen that's on the sandstone and you notice this moment of recognition where he sees like himself in a hostile world and it's just this is wonderfully powerful moment <laughs> <laughs> and I really love it. But everyone else is like, this is stupid. He's not punching anything. This is boring. <laughs> I hate this movie. And I'm like, this movie's awesome. The part where he holds on to the jet craft until he can see space, and then he passes out and falls into San Francisco Bay. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> but everyone else is like, why is he in, isn't he uppercutting somebody else who's yeah, really why, strong? Why did they turn off the smash? Yeah, so I guess that's kind of hypocritical <laughs> to say that I like... Yeah, but I like the Angley Hulk, but I kind of feel like you shouldn't be too high concept about a Spider-Man story. But maybe it's one of those things where if it works, then you forgive everything. Um, can I can I offer some parting thoughts on, on Spider-Man musical? Please. Is that I wish it didn't cost like $100 and it were only in New York so that everybody could see this and, and join me in this conversation. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of bad movies, a lot of sort of high concept uh, movies or, or, you know, movies that were overwrought and executed with a lot of money and, and, and vision that failed spectacularly, but I've never seen anything quite like Spider-Man Turn Out the Dark. This is really in a class into itself. Excellent. Well, that's it for uh, this episode of the Overthinking It <laughs> podcast. Maddie, if you, uh, if you want to come back, you're welcome anytime. Anytime you invite me. Uh, it was thanks. fun. Um, very much, and thanks to everyone else. Thanks to our sponsor, The Overview, at overthinkingit.com slash store. Uh, where you can hear our uh, excited ramblings about uh, Starship Troopers. And I think, um, oh, we're talking about what the next movie is going to be, so email us if you, uh, if you have any thoughts about that or post it in the comments. Um, don't, uh, don't, um, don't email podcast at overthinkingit.com, though, and don't call 203-285-6401. Instead, uh, you should head straight to iTunes and give us a high rating on the site, which will help other people find the um, uh, which will help other people find the show. That's the best thing you can do for us. We would really appreciate it if you you would do that. And in the meantime, uh, join the conversation on the show notes on the site. What site you ask rhetorically? In order to give me a uh, in order to give me a springboard to the outro, why it's overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny we. It probably Okay, so we do the Fantastics, but with Spider-Man. <laughs> Let's go back to West Side Story. I got it, I got it. Mary Jane, I just met a girl named Mary Jane. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Actually, West Side Story was the first thing I thought of because they really mastered the art of dance fighting, which I think you kind of have to have for a Spider-Man musical. Yeah, because when and snap fighting, fight, <laughs> because when Spider-Man tries to fight Arachne, I know who is like you know a, a woman on on wires with huge prosthetic spider legs. It yeah. looks really dumb. Wow! Careful the things you say. Batman will listen. <laughs> Careful the things you do. Batman will see. <laughs> You've got to be taught to be afraid of heroes whose capes are oddly made or ones whose briefs are a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. Try to remember you were married to Mary Jane Watson before you sold your soul to Mephisto. Can you follow? Follow, 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 follow. 